When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to take the questions of the day and answer them for you, the listener. Today we ask the question, or answer the question, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? And I think this question is the one the disciples are asking themselves. Who is the greatest? They were talking about it on the way while they were walking. Um, the irony is not lost on me that here these itinerant followers of a rabbi who have very little in material possessions they possess none of the trappings of power and yet they're still arguing about who is the greatest like Jim says in the office about Dwight that is the least amount of power I've ever seen go to anyone's head but it doesn't matter because puppy love is still love for the puppies and power is still power for for those who don't have a lot of it and these disciples want more they want to know who's going to be the greatest they do anticipate some kind of glorious future of wealth and prosperity it is very clear this comes up numerous times and yet the teaching material the material that Jesus is teaching his followers is that he'll be betrayed into human hands that he'll be killed and he'll rise again in three days <clears throat> it says they didn't understand what he was saying and they're afraid to ask him and this this inability to understand what Jesus is saying is definitely tied to what they really were thinking about the reason we don't understand a lot of things is not because we're not smart and not because we don't have the intellectual ability to understand something it is because we are focused on something else there is another reality that has consumed our imagination and the reality that has consumed the imagination of the disciples is this one where they will have power in the kingdom and it says that Jesus calls the 12 he sits down the 12 are symbolic the 12 apostles are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel and if the 12 tribes of Israel are instructive in any way of what the kingdom of God looks like they are not that organized either they are not uh, all that complete in their infancy or at least when they were first instituted to be the 12 tribes of Israel they are certainly not perfect and they have all sorts of issues to work out and so it is with these 12 apostles who are going to inaugurate the new Israel the new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating and they don't have it together either and this inability to see the gospel the good news the good news of Jesus is the focus of his teaching is his betrayal his death and his resurrection this is the mystery of all the universe this is the teaching 
that we are to understand as his followers. And if we don't understand it, if we don't, if we miss this, and we focus on our place in the kingdom, our place in in Jesus' house, uh, we have totally lost the good news of the gospel. And this is maybe just something professional Christians fall into. I'm a professional Christian getting paid for, for this. Um, but I think the rest of us can fall into it too. I think this is an equal opportunity temptation to miss the plot, to see what Jesus is doing as being somehow beneficial to us. And that is why we're part of it. Jesus takes a little child and puts it among the disciples. And then he picks up the child. So this act of putting the child down and then welcoming the child, picking the child up, is the, the parable, the visual parable. Whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Jesus says to treat children like royalty, to treat children kind of like an object of worship, to welcome a child the way we would welcome Jesus. And yet a child can give us nothing. A child can give us nothing, especially when it comes to power and prestige. Even if a child is well-connected parentally, it doesn't mean a thing that you're going to get some sort of advantage with the parents. What the, Jesus is showing his disciples is that when you love someone who can't love you back the same way that you want, or when you love someone and care for them who can't give you that immediate power reward, um, if you love someone who um, isn't able to reward you with some outward reward, that is when we are actually following the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel of Jesus has all to do everything to do with betrayal, with death, and with rising again. One of the parts of PTSD that is uh, perhaps the most difficult symptom to heal from, or, or part of PTSD to heal from, that manifests symptoms in a lot of ways, is the inability to trust. There is a betrayal in our trauma for a lot of people. Um, not just that something horrible happened to us, but that somehow someone or something we trusted isn't trustworthy anymore. That somehow that the rules of the universe are no longer trustworthy. For many of my colleagues in Iraq at the time I was there, there was a mortar round that hit the dining facility or the chow hall. And for the soldiers who survived it, that attack was particularly traumatic in a way that a lot of the other attacks didn't seem to be. The chow hall was sort of the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, the one place where you could sort of be yourself um, and sort of hang out with your pals and joke around and laugh a little bit and eat. And it was a place of refuge, maybe far beyond any bunker or tank. Uh, the chow hall represented safety and love. And, and so when that place got attacked, it seemed like um, it, it, it created the betrayal symptom in so many of the people that I witnessed there. 
this is the nature of trauma, that it is a betrayal, a betrayal of our sense of goodness, of our sense of right and wrong, of what we can trust. And Jesus calls us into that and says that is the path of the gospel, recognizing our trauma, recognizing our betrayal, recognizing the fact that this is inevitable, especially if we follow Jesus. And then we will die, whether this is a physical martyrdom that Jesus did call his disciples to, or the deaths along the way in our betrayal, in our sorrow, in our despair. And then three days, rising again. This prophecy that Jesus will rise from the dead is what changes Christianity from a death cult to a life journey, for lack of a better word. So much of human despair leads to this idea of a death cult. And I don't use this term lightly. I think there is a there is a symptom of trauma, the foreshortened future, sort of seeing the world in a post-apocalyptic haze. To see the wor people that have the symptom are often drawn to post-apocalyptic literature and movies because it seems more accurate, because it the outer world corresponds with the inner world. When you have the symptom of foreshortened future, when you feel like nothing's going to get better, everything's going to get worse. This is one of the symptoms of, of trauma and of PTSD. And when people have that, um, it's easy for them to get involved in despair and death cults. I think for a lot of people today in Christianity, Christianity has become a death cult. It's become a, a end of all life. The apocalyptic literature in the Bible has somehow fed into this in that all they see is the end of everything. And so when it comes to a pandemic where people are dying and we could take reasonable precautions and still live, people don't want to do that. In some ways, they would like to see the whole thing burned down. This is the impulse in the suicide cults, which are the, the most extreme versions of this, but it's even in the stories of domestic violence where uh, men will, will kill their families um, and then kill themselves. This is the kind of despair that, and this is the temptation of all of humanity, is when you find a cause that you can believe in to want to have it all go up in flames. And we see this again and again in human history. We see this in the siege of Munster uh, many years ago. And we see it in Ruby Ridge and Waco and other places like that. And this is where Jesus really changes the trajectory of Christianity in this part. Where even though he talks about the fellowship that he offers them is a fellowship in his betrayal, a fellowship in his own death, but it's also a fellowship in his resurrection. And that is the part of Christianity that I think most most connects with people that have been traumatized, that there is a hope of resurrection. It is on the other side of betrayal. It's on the other side of death. It is not instant. And it comes, this resurrection comes through the story that Jesus tells, through his teaching, through his life. And it comes through, in this case, by recognizing the inherent worth of a child, 
Um, one of the other symptoms of trauma for a lot of people is that they feel worthless and hopeless and helpless. And in that hopelessness and worthlessness, um, we feel like we are no longer valuable, especially if, if our trauma has created disability. And by disability, I mean the inability to do the stuff you could do before, inability to maintain a job the way you maintained it before, the inability to maintain relationships the way you did before. Um, whenever this disability is there, there is going to be uh, there's going to be uh, this feeling that I don't belong and nobody wants me. And this is uh, where Jesus says our value comes from who we are as children of God. We are all children of God. And just as this little child becomes the illustration of all of us, helpless, disconnected, uh, not a person that can get you anywhere in life, but someone that you can enjoy, someone that you can learn how to get to know, someone you can play with uh, as, a, as children can play, someone you can chase around the yard. Um, this is what children offer us. They offer this, this new vision of the world. If you ever talk to a child about any topic, um, you're going to find them much more open to all sorts of new realities than our cynical uh, adult brains allow us to be. I, my son is six, and I've been enjoying talking to him about cryptids like the Loch Ness Monster and the Abominable Snowman and Yeti because like, he's very open to that stuff, and it's fascinating to him. Um, it, whereas I, my brain tells me right away, none of this stuff is true. Well, his brain doesn't. He's still open to new ideas in the universe. And that's what Jesus is saying is the goal of all of our lives. So if you've been beat down by the world, if you felt betrayed and even killed, like your life is over, there is the hope of resurrection for you and for me. And it comes not through power, not through grasping power, not through taking power, but from giving it away, becoming like a child. To welcome a child in the name of Jesus is the path to eternal life. It is all there is. It is the first and greatest moment of our new life in Christ. There is nowhere to go from there once you have achieved that part of it. Once you've experienced that kind of love, that kind of acceptance, that kind of openness, that kind of welcome, there is no reason to want to be the greatest in that kingdom or any other kingdom. Amen. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.